Hello there, and welcome back to the Senate podcast. This is a special episode, folks. Um, I'm here with a very special guest, uh, Stefan Gagne, who is the lead writer at Fiction Factory Games, um, an independent video game company. Uh, They're responsible for the visual novels Arcade Spirits, Arcade Spirits, The New Challengers, and the recently released Penny Larceny, Supervillain, wait, uh, no. Game Economy Supervillain. I could, it's I got a mouthful that. Of, it's a mouthful of a title. I, it, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Stefan, thank you for joining me. How have you been? I've been doing good. Um, mostly been attempting to poke at Baldur's Gate 3 and working on another, another game project. Just, like, splitting my time between those two things. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I have, like, a big backlog, and I saw that Baldur's Gate 3 is eventually going to come to consoles, and I'm just like, yeah. no, don't do it. Don't do it. Hold off. Yeah, Stay like, focused. Wait, wait until you have time. Yeah. I do not really have time right now, so I'm probably going to put it aside, But because it is like one of those enormously threatening games. Like Whenever I see folks on Reddit saying, like, oh man, this game has 100 hours of gameplay, I'm like, that is a threat, not a promise. I know. I'm like, saying is... this will become your job. <laughs> yeah, I mainly gravitate towards, like, smaller experiences anyway so that's cool yeah, but like yeah. even like i'm i'm playing two rpgs at once now and i don't know why oh dear i don't know so yeah right. that, that's me well. in a nutshell i i'm i'm a video game developer i do indie games visual novels narrative games however you want to call it um i've been doing this for about four or five years now can pretty much continuously before that i was largely writing uh self-published ya novels and before that uh, I actually worked on a series of uh, game modules for Neverwinter Nights. I don't know how far back your uh, RPG lore goes, but that was like the 2000s. Mm, I'm not like the biggest RPG guy, so yeah. I've never heard of that. Um, but <laughs> And before that, just random bits of writing. And before that, I wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, yeah. Um, like, So the inspiration for this episode was uh, like a few months ago, Caleb, who's, you know, the host, uh, he isn't here, as you can see. Um, he said, hey, it'd be cool to, you know, try and reach out to some indie developers um, to have them on the podcast. And immediately I was like, I need to talk to the guy who wrote the Arcade Spirits games, because those games, like, you know, I had, uh, I lost my brother July of last year, so I was playing the games around then and like it was just the perfect um thing for me at that time you know like such yeah. like chill positive vibes you know i got to spend time with these lovable characters that i just grew to love and i genuinely feel like are my friends so um you know i'm really grateful to you for that and uh i'm excited to get to peer into the mind of a genius a little bit here <laughs> That's stretching it a bit, but I'm glad I was able to provide for you during a difficult time. That that that, that really does feel good. All right, so um, the most obvious question to start when talking to a writer of any kind is, what made you want to become a, a writer? Oh, man, like, I don't know if there was any one particular spark. Ever since I was a really little kid, I was always writing stories. Like, elementary school, 
I was writing fan fiction for my toys. Like even before I knew <laughs> what the word fan fiction was, we're talking staggeringly old. We're talking eighties and nineties. I'm a very, very old crumbling to dust dude. And I was writing like multi-page stories just on whatever the heck I wanted to always writing, always doing a story of some sort or another. And it just kept going and going and going. I never really stopped. Um, regardless of whether I could monetize the hobby, I would still be writing. So I'd be like writing stories throughout high school. I'd be writing stories throughout college. Then I started writing game modules, like I mentioned in Everyone Nights. So then we're going the other opposite direction of time. Uh, I started writing novels and finally writing games. It's just like, this is my passion slash hobby slash fixation slash unhealthy life obsession. And it's always been there. Yeah, it's um interesting that you mentioned, you know, like ever since you were a kid, you always had that spark because I look back, I've wanted to be a writer, but I've never really like I've I think I've written like two stories in their entirety, like one draft, but I I haven't pursued it as much as I wanted to. But like I look back at my childhood and like I used to write stories a lot and like, you know, like when I would like play with my toys and, you know, think of like different scenarios and you know storylines like that's that was kind of a form of writing so it's interesting like how a lot of people's dreams uh kind of the 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 genesis was in their childhood and like maybe they didn't you know really realize that that would become like an actual thing that's really interesting yeah this is like one of the nice things about the massively deregulated 1980s toy industry, where they had all those tie-in 30-minute, basically, commercials, um, is that even though it's like it was very blatantly just trying to get you to buy the toys, it would also provide a story. It would also provide characterizations. It gave you the narrative building blocks to understand, okay, here's the story surrounding these toys that you purchased, like G.I. Joe or Transformers or He-Man or whatever. Yeah. So when you're playing, you're kind of just making the story up in your head, but you're making it up based on the patterns and the established characterizations that you've already seen on TV. And for some of us, we just like took that a step farther. And it's like we didn't just smash the toys together while trying to come up with a reason in our heads. We did that, and then we wrote down the reason. Um, it's, but it's still the, essentially the same thing. It's still just firing off the imagination in order to craft a narrative out of some basic blocks so it, it's hard it's a pretty pretty good way for kids to like get started on this kind of stuff i feel yeah yeah definitely um so um you know uh you wrote stories and stuff when you were a kid you're writing fan fiction and eventually uh ya novels so um how did you end up writing visual novels like what were some of the video games that you played when you were younger you know like were there any specific ones that made you go I want to do this because I like how, you know, these can tell stories and, uh, you know, craft these yeah. worlds and stuff like that. Um, I think the two most influential things on that were the uh, one thing from the 80s, which were these really obscure games called Info Comics. And what this was, was basically a visual novel in the form of like an 8-bit computer program on a floppy disk. I had mine for the Apple II, oh, wow. for instance. And it was just simple graphics with, like, graphics and a text box under it, and it just told the story as you went through, and every now and then there'd be a branching choice. Now, in that format, it was, do you want to follow this character or follow this character as they part ways? And then you see the story from a different perspective, depending on which one you pick. Um, these games were not popular. 
they made like three of them and then shut down the company. But uh, for a little kid, you know, I don't know about the industry trends. I don't know that this was a doomed enterprise. I just thought this was a really cool format. I thought this was a really cool way to do a story, a really cool way to do a game. And that stuck with me. Now, then I got, then there was a long gap. I got older. Um, and I started seeing that this is actually a common format, notably a spot coming out of Japan. Like that's where basically the, the origin of the format came out of. The idea of having like visuals with characters on the top, text box on the bottom, branching paths, which is the core of a visual novel. And I thought, well, I mean, like I'm a moderately okay programmer, a reasonably good writer, and that's about as far as you can throw it. Therefore, if I want to make a game, a visual novel is actually a pretty good format for me because it leans very heavily into the strengths of being a writer without requiring, like, I have to program, you know, a man floating in space shooting a gun at aliens. You know, I can't do that. That's way beyond the scope of what I was capable of. But yeah, writing it's... a story and then stringing together some light code to put it all together, that's something I could do. Yeah, it's, like, crazy how, like, even the most rudimentary video games like they take forever to program like i can't imagine yeah anything that's like action based where you actually have like a primary gameplay loop and you have objects that move around and you have to deal with physics and you have to deal with collision even just something simple as like a nintendo platform or like a mario there's a lot of moving parts yeah and it involves a lot of programming skill which i was did not have up my sleeve but that's fine because I didn't really want to make an action game. I, I wanted to make something that was incredibly story-based because that's where my passion lies in telling stories. And the ideal format for that is something where the narrative is the mechanic. The narrative is the main draw. Like you play visual novels for the narrative. There is art to go with the narrative and it's usually extremely good art, but it is still the narrative that brings you in. So that's why it seemed like the ideal format. So about five years ago, I was attending a panel at PAX uh, that was titled Romance and Games. And one of the people speaking on the panel was Anna Schumann. And we struck up a conversation after the panel, and I got to know her. And I don't know if she suggested or I suggested it. The story changes either way, like back and forth over time. But we came to the idea of, like, let's do a visual novel together. Because that's something that we could both do within our skill sets. We can hire artists and musicians while we take care of the narrative. And I take care of the code. And that's how the first Arcade Spirits came to be. It was just literally us deciding, let's do it. You know, let, let, let's put our heads together and let's see if we can make this happen. And from there, it just snowballed. Mm. That's so cool that, like, when you, you know, like, you, like, meet other like-minded people and you just, like, uh, find a way to make something. You mentioned, um... You know, those, like, old, like, choose-your-own-adventure games. I've seen a little bit, um, you know, like, footage from some of those on, like, those old computers. I I want to say one of them was the Commodore 64 yeah. or something. Yeah, and it's, like, those games, you know, like, I'm sure, you know, like, that's a genre that's been around for, like, a while. But, like, it's so weird to see that the genesis of it was literally just pure text and, like, players had to imagine what the scenario was and what was happening and now look at how far we've come it's mind-blowing well the info (laughs) comics that i mentioned which were like one of the first visual novels i ever played back in the 80s they're so-called info comics because they come from a company called infocom 
Sorry, it's like a wacky name. Um, Infocom was primarily known for absolutely pure text adventure games. So like it describes, okay, here's where you are. You see these objects. Here are the exits. What do you want to do? And you literally type like get flask or put towel on hook into the little text box. And then it would respond to your language. You type in natural language and it would respond in your language and like show how the story unfolds from there. It was never particularly bright about that. It would often like not understand what the hell you're telling it to do unless you used extremely specific wording that you had to kind of guess at. This was very rudimentary. But it was an extremely story-driven game format. And so some of the earliest games I ever played were those text adventures. And then the next step up from there were things like the LucasArts point-and-click games, like The Secret of Monkey Island or yeah, Sam that's a classic Road one. or Day of the <laughs> Tentacle. Um, these were games which combined story puzzles and art and were primarily driven by characters um and a lot of my game philosophy and my game designs i draw from those old experiences for instance in arcade spirits you notice how everybody talks in a different color like yeah they're in the box they're a different color that's straight out of the old lucas arts point and click games in those games they would have the text hovering above the character's head it wouldn't be in a box and it would be colored to match the voice of the characters talking because this was like they started making these games, I want to say, like two or three years before voice acting became common. So you would want to see, like, okay, if I can, you see visual shorthand. Like, if this character is talking blue and this character is talking in red, you can easily, at a glance, tell who is talking at any given moment because of the color changes. So, for instance, that's one idea I brought forward to Arcade Spirits. I, there's a lot of little influences from the past that basically carried their way forward into my own games. Yeah, well, you know, um, speaking of that, uh, your visual novels, um, you know, have I'm I'm currently playing Penny Larceny. I haven't beaten it yet, but mm -hmm. I know the Arcade Spirits games, uh, you know, have a lot of like different like paths and stuff. Um, when you you were writing those, uh, did you like have any of those specific paths? in mind or did you just have like the general plot and then as you you know went along in the production and stuff like kind of fleshed out some more things as you thought of them i'd say it was a hybrid at least for the very first game for the first game we were flying a little bit by the seat of our pants we were kind of like coming up with some of the stuff that was going to appear in later chapters kind of late in the game um i knew the overall structure because I wanted to make sure it was balanced between all six characters. So I already knew like the basic structure. The first chapter, we're going to introduce all six characters and give you a minor situation to deal with where you have to pick between different characters to solve your problems. Then the next three chapters will be focusing on two characters each. The idea of like, okay, the second chapter, that's Gavin and Naomi. Third, that's Teo and Ashley. Fourth, that's Queen Bee and Percy. So everybody gets an equal shot. You get an equal split chance between all the characters, depending on who you want to talk to. Then fifth, we'd establish the romance. And then sixth, then Wave wasn't sure. Still figuring things out. Generally had an idea. Didn't have it in stone. For later games, like especially for New Challengers and Penny Larceny, we, there was a lot more pre-production planning out of like, okay, here's the overall arc. Here's what you need to have to happen in each chapter. Here's the structure. But that first game, we were kind of feeling it out a little. Are you um, a plotter, a pantser, or some combination of uh, of those? Um, 
inside out plot depends. Um, what I tend to do is I start with a very, very broad high level overview. Like here's the point of the story. Here's where it starts. Here's where it ends. Here are a couple steps you need to do in between them. Then you start going into another layer of detail. Like, okay, that's the broad strokes. What's the next step down? What do each of those steps entail? Figure that out. Then when I actually get down into the individual chapters, individual steps of the plot, that's when I go a little bit more seat of my pants. That's when I'm like, okay, moment to moment, line to line, what is this character going to say? Where is this conversation going to go? What is going to be revealed? And sometimes like in that pants moment, you, uh, you kind of discover something about the character you didn't think of. Yeah, I've had that happen a lot. Yeah, it's and really it can fun. change the direction. <laughs> a good example, in Penny Larceny, there's this one hero called Muscle Memory. I don't know if you run into him yet in your playthrough. Probably um, not. No. All right. He started out as a pretty aggressive, very annoying, self-centered meathead. Just a jerk. Even like a little racist. Like mm. in the I'm not a racist, but I just raised questions type, you know, that where they don't think they're racist. Yeah, yeah. Um then after I finished writing one of his chapters, I get to another chapter where he pops up. And we're starting in a conversation with that guy, and I'm starting to get a little more sympathetic to him. Like I'm starting to write in things that I hadn't thought of previously, just on the fly, like, okay, what motivates him? Why is he doing what he does? And I start realizing this guy is actually not the one-dimensional jerkwad that I had him be in the previous chapter. Mm, There's more going on here. So I went back and I edited the previous chapter so that I could flesh him out a little bit more, make him a little bit more neutral, make him a little bit more of like, yes, he's an antagonist standing in your way, but you understand why. So... When you're in the pants moments, when you're discovering who these people are, word to word, sentence to sentence, line to line, paragraph to paragraph, you can often change your mind about them. And then you just go back and you edit what you did before. Just make sure it all clicks together. It's really only a problem if you decide, like, this character is now so completely different that it upends my entire plan for the plot. But if that happens, you know, you still got to roll with what you found out. You can't just force it. Yeah. One thing that, like, I've heard people say how they put it is, like, they let the characters, like, kind of have free reign. I think that's a really interesting yeah. thing. One of the things that I immediately noticed when I was playing Arcade Spirits and even more so the New Challengers, which is the second one, um, is the RPG kind of elements in them, you know, such as uh the personality system, you know, where... Right. You can choose whether you want to respond in a headstrong way, a balanced way, a joking way, compassionate, and uh, the other one's basic, where, like, you know, it's just, like, kind of, like, yeah, a regular... Trying. You just uh, learn not... more and push it along, yeah. Yeah, Um. so, you know, that's not something I've seen. Like, the only other visual novels I've played that I I feel like had anything kind of like that was... Uh, Across the Grooves. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. Not familiar, no. It had something like that, but it was a little more stripped down. And then uh, the Danganronpa visual novels have, like, you have certain moments where you can spend time with characters, and if you give them presence, they, like, you get, like, closer to them and stuff. Yeah. So, um, were you ever, like, a fan of RPGs, or uh, what was the inspiration to 
include something well, to make them more than just, you know, your run-of-the-mill visual novels. That system is directly inspired by the greatest cover-based dating simulator ever made, Mass Effect. Mm. And it is a cover-based dating simulator. Let's be fair. Commander Shepard has a very close relationship with the chest-high wall. But what was really remarkable is Mass Effect Andromeda, the game that everybody hated, the game that the critics panned, the one that was thrown on the ash heap of history. Yeah. <laughs> if you play that game, it has a dialogue system extremely similar to Arcade Spirits. Ooh, Everything cool. you say is tagged with a personality type. Like maybe you're professional. Maybe you're joking. Maybe you're casual. Maybe you're inquisitive. And there's a little symbol for each of those things. So you choose not necessarily exactly what you're going to say because, you know, it's a dialogue wheel. You can't put the entire line of dialogue on the dialogue wheel. Yeah. But you pick the tone. And that tone builds who your character is and how people react to you. So no matter what else people say about Andromeda, I think that was a pretty cool system. And I wanted to do something similar for my own game. I wanted to give it, like, a mechanical layer to it that went beyond just earning relationship points, which is the standard RPG mechanic for visual novels. I wanted to give it that, of course, because that's a nice nice quantitative way to figure out where you stand with characters. But I also wanted to add in this personality building system. Um, it adds a little bit of strategy. It adds a little bit of tactical overview to what you do. And it also kind of acts like a personality quiz. Like, you know, those quizzes you read on the back of a supermarket checkout rack magazine, which is what was directly cited in the game, where it says, like, what kind of a person are you? Oh, Fill yeah. out this <laughs> quiz and find out. Well, if you play Arcade Spirits, by the end of the game, you're going to know what kind of person you are, because if you literally just pick what's in your heart, how you would react in any given situation, it'll tell you pretty readily what kind of a person you are. Now... We will say that we did screw up in one regard, which is the balance. In the first game, you can pretty much never go wrong hitting the little green heart. You can never go wrong picking kindly. Nobody ever reacts badly to kindly. It's always the right thing to say in any given moment. It'll always win you points if there's a point on offer. So players kind of twig to that when they're playing the game. And we're just like, if I see the green heart, I'm picking the green heart. And that's great, but that's like throwing 66% of the writing out the window, because there's three options every time it pops up, and only one of them is the heart. So for new challengers, we tried to balance it out more. There are characters in that game where the heart will not do much of anything for them. The yeah, I did definitely notice that. Zapper, for instance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to have a situation in New Challengers where the characters were much more balanced across the different traits. Some of them enjoy some traits more than others. It's not always 100% consistent. It depends on situation to situation. But you have more leeway to go a little farther afield than just being the nicest, nice, friendly, nice person ever nice to friendly yeah. in that game. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, you know, like the narrative uh, adventure genre is like my favorite genre of video games because of how invested I get. But they also hurt me. You know, like you were saying, like um, playing, you know, those games is kind of like a personality test. And like generally when I play those games for the first time, you know, it's funny that you mentioned in the first one, uh, in the first Arcade Spirits, you could just pick you know, the kind response and that, that'll never fail you. I never yeah. 
want to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm not like a total marshmallow in real life, but I also try to avoid conflict just because I'd prefer yeah. just to avoid. Co and it's then, understandable. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people approach narrative games that way. Yeah, and then uh, one of the things in new new challengers that relates to this that really you know just floored me was um at first i was i was like oh i played the first game and i was kind i'm gonna play the second game and be headstrong you know like i'm just gonna be you know like a go-getter and stuff and you know because of the backstory of the main character that felt right and then i got to that scene with uh when the main character is talking to his or their iris and they're basically like yeah you know uh when you were a kid you felt like you had to you know like always win like always be victorious or else people like wouldn't respect you or whatever yeah and then that like that just floor like i was like first of all i don't like that i'm being personally attacked by this game right now um <laughs> But the, the you attacks know, like, will continue until morale <laughs> improves. Yeah, and then like I played the the rest of the game being more level headed because that was kind of a ego check for me as like oh I'm kind of I was like subconsciously playing the game and being the kind of person that I feel like I have to be in real life, but I feel like maybe I could you know let my guard down a little bit, and so that was like a really interesting uh yeah. It's moment. That moment was really uh, that moment was written and rewritten and rewritten many, many times because it's doing a trick that's really hard to do in narrative games like these, especially ones where you're kind of putting yourself into the character, where you, you design your character, you name your character, your character is you. Yeah, it's told as I from the first person perspective, which is that if this character in the world actually has a motivation if they're not just a completely and utterly blank cipher with no personality and no drive and no motivation beyond what the player clicks on, then you need to be able to get the player, the one behind the keys, to sympathize with the flaw that the character they're playing has, to understand this flaw. Like, Here's a good example. In the first Arcade Spirits, there's a moment where you realize your roommate, your best friend Juniper, didn't tell you about a job opportunity. She, yeah. She, yeah, she kept that back from you. And you have the choice. Do you want to get mad at her over that? Or do you just want to completely let it slide and act like nothing is wrong? I actually now, struggled with that a little bit. I'm yeah. like, I don't know, man. Like, I mean, well, I like, love these characters that I met, so... But, you know, she also lied. <laughs> most people who played that game, because I watch people streaming the game. This is, like, not just for fun or ego tripping. This is literally research. Yeah. This is me seeing why people choose what they choose and what they choose. You know, understanding the mentality going on, because the streamer will talk the process aloud. And almost everyone picked just instantly forgive Juniper and forget that this was ever a thing. Now, okay... I did provide that as an option, but the problem is that this dismisses the very valid concern the player character should have that, like, okay, but how am I going to make rent? Yeah. How am I going to eat lunch? I don't have money coming in. This was a lost opportunity. But because we gave you the opportunity to just say, eh, whatever, it's fine, I don't care, um, it kind of strips away the power and the risk of the situation that you're in. So for new challengers, when I wanted to say, okay, your character has an unhealthy fixation, you're not allowed to just immediately dismiss it out of turn and say, okay, whatever, I won't worry about that anymore. 
Mm. You know, I'm the player character. I'm the player. I'm sitting behind the keys. I feel invincible because I'm not actually in this world, and I don't have to worry about eating and sleeping and paychecks. So therefore, I'm not going to get upset about it. I will just choose the option where my character does not have any worries or cares. We didn't allow that in New Challengers. You have to deal with the realistic fallout of the character's fixation on winning. Whereas in Arcade Spirits, we let you just sort of dismiss it and trivialize the concern. So that's like just an example of growing from game to game in terms of like, we need to be able to lead the player to actually connect with the character not always succeeding and not always being able to deal with everything that's in front of them. And this is one way we can do that. Wow, it's interesting that you put it that way because uh, one of the other things that worked in tandem with that to just make that game just you know resonate with me so much was actually uh jinx you know because when you know um you know just to divulge a little bit about myself i love redheaded women you know so when i met zapper i was like oh i'm obviously gonna be with her because you know she's my type like you know and then you know like as i got to know jinx more and stuff i started to get attached to her but i've always like had this thing of like would i be able to be with somebody who had like a disability or something like that and i always would just think i don't think i'm i'd be strong enough to handle that because you know that's like Uh a really big sacrifice and stuff and it's not convenient exactly so you know but then you know i i chose to be with jinx and it's like you know like forming that relationship with her in tandem with you know that moment we talked about kind of helped me like be more level-headed in real life about certain things and like yeah maybe realize you know oh i i think i can you know handle a lot more so that was you know i really applaud you and thank you yeah for that 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 jinx's personality because jinx every character in the game is defined by two of the four personality traits and generally, they respond well to either of them. In Jinx's case, it's steady and gutsy. They're kind of opposite things, but when you think about Jinx, it clicks, because Jinx knows when to play cool, and Jinx knows when to get angry. Yeah. Jinx knows when to take a firm stand, and when to just sort of back off and think about something, think something through. So the fact that you started moving away from being hot-headed and towards being level-headed and you ended up going with Jinx instead of Zapper. That's like a, that's a little arc right there. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx was very important to me because Jinx is disability representation, which I've not been able to do in a story to date. I mean, I am physically disabled. I have, I have dwarfism. I have mobility issues. I have basically a lot of the same things Jinx has going on. It's a different condition. I don't have her syringomyelia. What I did was I actually worked with a disability consultant. I said, listen, I need a disability that I can draw from my own life experience for, which have like similar complications and similar considerations. But I need it so that they can stand upright. Like they can't be sitting in a wheelchair or sitting on a scooter because there's this text box at the bottom of the screen. And if the character can't rise above that text box physically and match the eye line of all the other characters who are looking across the screen at her, then that's going to cause some, you know, user interface problems. So it's like a technical issue that was solved by going with a different disability. 
but it was important to me to get some genuine dis- disability representation going in there. And Jinx has actually been a little controversial. There have been some disabled really? folks who feel that she's a bad representation of disability or like huh. it's, it's an ableist representation of disability. I'm telling people, this is literally my life that I wrote down here. You know, if it's ableist, it's only because that's the world around her. Like if she's constantly bringing up her disability, it's only because she keeps getting put into situations where she has to consider it. And she actually resents that fact. Um, but, you know, people are entitled to their own views on these things. And disability is absolutely not a one size fits all. Every disability is different. Everybody's needs are different. Everybody's views on disability are different. Like with the terminology they want to use, the way they interface it with reality, the way they think things should be handled, everybody has a different take. So I understand criticism. I'm good with that. But it was still important for me to take a crack at getting disability representation in there. And as you say, you know, it helped because it helped you see a perspective that you weren't you weren't familiar with and weren't sure you'd be able to be able to step up with. Yeah, I didn't know about, you know, your disability at first. And then, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit more about you. And then I found that out. And then I like, yeah. would I be wrong in saying that uh, writing Jinx was, you know, like a like a very cathartic experience? Oh, yeah. for you? Absolutely. I mean, you put a little bit of yourself in every character you write. Yeah, because sure. you, you can really only you can you primarily draw from your own experiences, and whenever you have to go wildly outside the scope of your own experiences, you have to do a lot of research. You have to talk with consultants, you have to talk with experts, sensitivity readers, notably if you're trying to write for like an ethnicity that is not your own. Um, you want to do it right. You want to do it justice. You want to see which stories are ones that I can take on, which are not my story to tell, and should really be told by someone who's actually had that lived experience. And disability is just one of the many things that, like, makes up me that I managed to put into my characters. Yeah. Um, I've noticed, you know, um, that you like to, you know, you said you like to do research by watching people play your games. And I've noticed in your Discord server, you know, you're, like, talking to other fans in there about oh, yeah. the project you're working on now and stuff like that. And I've never really seen... uh that kind of a thing done, you know, by like creative people. So um, was there any particular inspiration for, you know, like why you wanted to open up such a collaborative uh, way to write your stories? Well, I mean, honestly, that's how I always used to do it. When I was writing young adult novels, when I was doing the Neverwhere Nights modules, um, I would openly talk about them. I would discuss them with folks who were interested in them and like gathering to talk about it. I had like comments and feedback forums and forums. This is back when we had forums. Um, That was always my process. It was only when I got to Arcade Spirits and we started saying, okay, let's get like an actual game publisher on board for this. Let's bring on a professional company. Let's do this like a real video game, not just like a hobby project. Let's go all out on it. And the agreement was that we were going to be under NDA. We're not going to talk about the game. We're going to strictly control the communication of the game. We're going to control our timing of the communication of the game because we want to make sure that the press is only paying attention to it and we have something noteworthy to say and something that's not going to be contradicted later on down the line. Like, how many times have we seen the yellow JPEG from the cyberpunk folks where, like, they had plans to do a thing and oh it fell through? <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be in that situation. So you want to lock down every single thing you're saying about a work in progress and never say a thing unless you're sure of it. 
I kind of chafed under those restrictions, quite frankly. I prefer to work openly. I prefer to share the creative process. I prefer to engage with people. And so it was a little frustrating, especially on Penny Larceny, when like I literally couldn't tell anybody Penny Larceny existed until like three or four months until its release. Because that that's just be how madness. you do things. <laughs> it is. And then and we released it and almost nobody got it. It tanked. So maybe that wasn't the right approach. Um, so for this latest project, I'm going back to my roots. I'm saying, all right, if holding every card close to your chest didn't work for me the last two times, let's just go back to how I did my novels. Let's just open up and say, okay, here's what I'm working on. Here are some work in progress screenshots. Here's what I'm thinking about doing with this. I'd love to get your feedback. I'd like to make sure I'm on the right track. I'd like to make sure this is something you'd be interested in and be more open and collaborative. Now, I will say this is not something you can do when you're like electronic arts. Oh yeah. You cannot yeah, do definitely. this when you're Blizzard or Activision. You can't take a community of like 5 million fans and say, hey guys, here's like a screenshot of this gun I'm working on. What do you think? You'd be, no, that does not work. Oh, yeah. The only reason I can do this is because I am a very small scale. There's like maybe a dozen or so people who are in that you know, little secluded area of my Discord where I'm sharing about Game 4. And that works fine. If that ramped up considerably to like hundreds, then I might need to dial things back because it would just get unmanageable. So in practical terms, this is right for me now, but this isn't right for everyone. Yeah, I think that's probably like one of the perks of, you know, being more independent, you know, whether you're making video yeah. games, films, novels. I mean, yeah, like you're not going to, be as wealthy you know which could be a downside but you also get to do a lot of uh things and work in several methods that you can't when you're at the top and you have you know a whole bunch of people that you know are looking over your shoulder you know they yeah. have to approve everything you do <laughs> yeah it's like in that structure that does make sense like i'm not going to slam it as it's a terrible way to make games just hold everything back no in the in those giant triple A structures or even double A or whatever you want to put it, you can't swing that. But at the size I am, and the fact that this is not the way I'm earning my living, I have a day job, oh. and that is how I make this work. Because the games themselves, only one of them is profitable, and that's the first arcade spirits. The other two, so this is something that I can just do because I want to do it. Not because I need to absolutely perfectly optimize the way I'm doing gaming development in order to put food on the table. Uh, uh, what's your regular job, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I do just basic web management for a government agency. It's nothing exciting. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's boring, it's frustrating, but it pays the bills and it gets me insurance, and that's really what I need out of it. Yeah, if you were just working on uh, video games and stuff, you oh, I'd be dead. <laughs> probably, oh yeah, yeah. Which there'd be a bleached white skeleton here on the webcam if I had to rely yeah. entirely on the video games. <laughs> I'm gonna swing back to you know class inequality in a bit when we talk about penny larceny. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of you know uh, collaboration in your work, um, are you involved in any other aspects of your games besides the scenario and story? Yeah, um, basically, if there's a hat I can wear, I'll wear it. Um, if I can do user interfaces, if I can do some of the backgrounds, graphics, visual effects, if I can do the coding, I will do it. Because my labor is effectively free. 
it's not really. I mean, when you look at it at the high level, I'm spending all my time and energy on this thing. But it's one less thing that I need to contract out if I can do it myself. And honestly, I like the challenge. Like, for this latest game project I'm doing, um, I thought, okay, what can I do on a smaller budget than the previous games while still have it look good? And I thought of all these different visual effects tricks and these different ways of presenting the game that I could largely do myself that would still look good and would be kind of a challenge and be an interesting thing to take on for fun. And so, yeah, if there's an aspect of the game I can do myself, I'll do it myself, but I know my limits. Like, I'm not going to try to do music for the game. I'm not going to try to draw characters. It would look horrible. It would sound like crap. Yeah, the the music in the Arcade Spirits games is just mm. immaculate. Like, did you uh communicate with the composer and like listen to like yeah. some of the stuff that he made? At, yeah, we, at all? when we did the original Arcade Spirits, we put out an open call for music. We said we wanted music in like a synthwave or a vaporwave genre. Like, we knew the tone we wanted, and we got like fifty different people sending us stuff and i was like no this guy isn't actually in our genre no this person isn't really doing what we want this person costs four hundred fifty-two thousand dollars. we do not have this and we landed miraculously on greg murals who was doing these amazing synthwave songs and was basically i don't want to say a hobbyist but like definitely like on the same scale we were we were like basically both of us trying to do something out of almost nothing. And the music was just delightful. Like, I immediately bought every album this guy had on Bandcamp because it was just Chef's Kiss, amazing music. I was like, this person actually wants to work with dirtbags like us? I'm amazed. And it just clicked. And we got the contract going, sent some sketches back and forth, like, here's what I'm thinking about for this song, here's what I'm thinking of this song. I'd say, like, I need songs that cover these emotional ranges that fit in these situations to draw from and just this collaborative back and forth process until we had the whole thing ready to rock. And the same thing followed for TNC since the same musician did TNC. I've never heard music in visual novels that good that weren't made by like Spike Chunsoft, you know, or one of these big oh, yeah. studios, but like it, like he, he, you know, like it, it made me think of that, that meme uh, about the, the, Disney Tarzan movie where you know like the producer of the soundtracks like okay Phil um you know you're working on the music for this movie it's about a guy who lives with a bunch of apes you don't really have to try that hard and then he just goes into the studio and just makes a straight banger like it like oh yeah he really man shout out to Greg he he's yeah, gonna Greg, do great things <laughs> Greg they are just an amazing musician, and we were very, very lucky to work with him. That's the end of the general questions. Uh, I got some about Arcade Spirits. Um, mm-hmm. So we can talk more about that, which always sure. makes me happy. Um, so <laughs> just just right off the bat, uh, what was the inspiration for, you know, the overall story and world? Well, Anna and I were very interested in doing a romance-focused game. Um and I wanted to draw upon things that were long-standing situations I liked, long-standing narrative structures I liked, and things I was into. And the idea of doing a 1980s workplace comedy sitcom, like Your Night Court, Cheers, Wings, things like that, where it's like people who are brought together in sort of a found family structure, 
underneath the cause of one particular organization or one particular company, all pulling in for the same thing. And at the time, I was very, very into um, arcade cabinet restoration videos on YouTube on people who like film themselves, like bringing these old junked up 1980s arcade cabinets back to life with new components, trying to fix monitors, doing lots and lots of testing when things wouldn't work right. Now and I see I where like, Naomi came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very much from those. A lot of the terminology that Naomi uses in her scenes about repairing cabinets is straight from those YouTube channels. It's all authentic. Um, and Anna and I both had a love for retro games. And so it made sense. Like this, is, we'll take the things that we're passionate about and put them into a game. Yeah, I really um like the uh, laid back vibe, but there were certain story turns that I didn't expect. You know, like oh yeah, in particular, I'll uh, play in the first game when you go to Jekonami's mansion, and you know, uh, I in my first playthrough, I uh, chose to uh, join Naomi in the basement to look at, you know, like possible machines that they could bring back. Cause she was, uh, who I dated. So I wanted to spend as much time with her as I could. And, you know, in a, in a corner somewhere in the dark is a game called Polybius. Polybius. I was like, yeah. I know what that is. Yo, is this going to be like, is this where we're going? So, you know, there, and then um, yeah. there's, you know, the whole thing with Iris, uh, kind of leading an uprising depending on your choices and stuff so um yeah did you have any of these like you know like crazy story turns in mind when you started writing or did you just have oh, yeah. a moment where you're like i want to be really weird with this <laughs> no we, we had a lot of those things in mind um polybius is part of arcade culture and this whole story yeah. was basically meant to be a celebration of arcade culture so it made sense to include this you know urban legend, tall tale, creepypasta of arcade lore. And especially at that moment, because like I mentioned, it, this is right after you find out from Juniper that you missed your job, you missed a better job opportunity. And so you should be questioning, like, am I where I need to be? Is this what I should be doing? And when you know it, then you bump into Polybius and you have to start basically interrogating yourself, have to start coming to some emotional realizations. No, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do, and here's how I can move forward with it beyond just, you know, punching in each day. You know, you can champion the cause of the complex. You can make it soar. You can be ambitious. Um, you can believe in the dream. So the Polybius situation, beyond just being a fun little, you know, horror comedy moment, is an important character moment because it represents a turning point for your player character into which they start throwing themselves wholeheartedly into the funplex. Um, so that was absolutely in the plan from day one. There were a couple other little things that um, I don't want to spoil for your listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just say <laughs> the identity of a character that gets revealed in Chapter 7, or chap actually in Chapter 8, the very start of Chapter 8, when you find out, wait a minute, this person actually knew this person, and there's a relationship between them. Ah, that was actually decided on pretty late. That wasn't actually part of the original story, and yet it mm. ended up being one of the most pivotal things of the story. That's where I mentioned that, like, Arcade Spirits, the first one was a lot more seedier pants. For the second one, things like that were absolutely planned out way the heck ahead of time. There was a lot more planning and preparation for the big turns at that point. Yeah, that uh, Polybius moment is also uh, the first appearance, I'm pretty sure, I might be wrong, it's been a while since I've played it, of the 
quote-unquote turn-based combat sections where you know like you're fighting yeah, there's a sort of a opponents of and you have to shoot so first of all i'm just curious like is there any way to fail those or like is there like any kind of strategy yes. to it okay. well not in the first game like oh. in the polybius encounter um i considered having a fail state where you would literally just die and that would be the end of the game but it's like it became pretty clear as we were making the game that fail states aren't really an arcade spirits thing like, nobody plays these games in order to face a challenge and then lose and have to reload their save. Yeah, That's exactly, not yeah. really what people are looking for. So, no, you really can't fail. Even though it like th it claims, oh, you're in danger, you know, things are bad, you're losing health, really it's just, you know, window dressing to raise the tension and give you a little bit of sense of an excitement. Um, you can't fail it. But in the second game, when you're doing the Fist of Discomfort minigames, you can't fail those. I'm going to be, yeah, like, I've... I'm not really a RPG fan, especially turn-based, yeah. so I I had no idea what kind of strategy to use sometimes, and I'm just like, I don't know. I'm just going to wing it. Yeah, we tried to put narrative clues in there, like, okay, these characters are really angry, and they're primarily going to use attacks and specials, so plan accordingly. Or we would throw in a twist of like, okay, we think this character is going to be defensive. Wait a minute, they started out attacking. Maybe they're doing something against their usual strategy. You know, we tried to have narrative hints. But the cool thing about it in that game, first of all, you can skip the mini games. That was in the plan from day one. Is like, oh, yeah, for people right. who just don't want to do this, who don't want to have this little game within a game, let's just let them skip and they can decide their own narrative outcome. That's fine. We don't care. We're not going to force you to do it. Um, but the other thing is that, and I took inspiration from the old uh, 90s Flight Simulator Wing Commander for this. Um, if you win or if you fail those little minigames, it changes the story, but your story still continues. You can fail every single Fist of Discomfort match in that game, and you will still play through the story to the end. It'll just be a different story. You don't mm. lose anything. You don't miss out on any story beats. It was important to me that, like, your success and your failure in that little minigame is not just, oh, well, you better reload your save. I guess you didn't win. No, it's teaching your player character how to deal with loss or how not to be a sore winner. I've, I think the uh, customization aspects of your games are really cool. I'm going to... Uh swing back around to that in a little bit so okay. the last arcade spirits question um one of the hot cultural topics right now is artificial intelligence oh yeah mm -hmm. everybody loves yeah, it no it's terrible um it's so um, you know that's a hot topic right now uh did you know that your work on this game would be prophetic in any way <laughs> um not really. Um, Iris is more of an AI in the tradition of 1980s cyberpunk books, like William Gibson and Bruce Sterling's work. Mm. Um, Iris is a character who's like, kind of an innocent. Iris didn't ask to be this singularity apocalypse in the making. She was born into this world pretty much against her consent by a major corporation and told, be powerful, be useful, be helpful. And she's doing her best with that mandate. Um, so I see that more in terms of the dangers of humanity being a little too fast and loose with AI in the name of profit at the expense of the AI itself. Like as if the, the AI is a character who should have a say in how it's being used. And I didn't want to present just your standard, you know, 
I will destroy mankind yeah. because they're evil. No, it's this is a character like I don't want to destroy mankind, and I'm very uncomfortable with what I'm being asked to do. I thought that was an interesting approach that I hadn't seen in too many stories, so I wanted to take it on. Yeah, that really ramps up in the new challengers, and like by the end of it, I, I, I didn't really get a positive ending in regards to her story, and it made me go. Uh-oh. <laughs> I felt like I just, like, raised a kid to, like, be evil. I was like, oh, oh my, yeah. what have I done? <laughs> well, it's like, you could view it as evil, or you could just view it as you gave Iris a little too much confidence. Yeah. <laughs> you gave Iris a little too much gumption. Um, and I like that. I like that, like, there's unintended consequences, because Iris is listening to you and patterning her behavior off of your own. So when you tell her, I would like you to break the law, I'd like you to hack this guy, I'd like you to do this thing that violates someone's privacy, I'd like you to stand up and do whatever you want, then Iris takes those lessons to heart, and that's reflected in your ending. Yeah, that was a really uh, great way to frame it and make her surprisingly a pretty good character. Um, mm. Okay, moving on to Penny Larceny, your yes. latest project. Um, what inspired you to, you know, because the Arcade Spirits games, you know, there's some, like, wacky sci-fi, but it's pretty grounded, and then Penny Larceny is about superheroes and villains, you know, very fantastical. Um, What made you want to uh, write that kind of a story? Um, Honestly, I wanted to do a social satire. I wanted to do political humor. I wanted to take all the things I was worried about and concerned about and mad about and put it in a game. I wanted to get that out there because it was on the forefront of my mind and it needed an escape. We had some of that in New Challengers through like Loxley's storyline, for instance, or some of the things Domino talks about, but it was still largely just a game about <coughs> arcade culture, even if it was also critiquing capitalism. I wanted to go all out. I wanted to take it as far as I could, really go out on a limb. Um, and it felt like the right story to do. I, I felt like taking it through this lens of this exaggerated superhero, supervillain world, if I could show this like streamlined parody of the 21st century through the lens of these larger-than-life characters, then that could be a fun combination. And it, it panned out. It's like it had the right amount of refuge and audacity that I could get away with talking about some of this stuff in a jokey manner and have people go, ha that's relatable, I hate that. Um, and it, I feel that the formula clicked pretty well. Yeah, I um, one of the characters that stuck out to me in terms of uh, that was... Uh, I... Somehow I've forgotten his name, but the... the the doctor um dr mayhem yeah yeah doctor yeah like him saying like you know because i think penny's like oh so um do you want to you know do like big evil schemes and he's like nah i just want to share my medicine and stuff for free like yeah and like that you know like like society's just so fucked that you know like helping people without letting people make big profit off of it is like considered a criminal act like i thought that yeah, was yeah uh, <laughs> i mean he did literally do a crime what he did was he took the company he was working for and when they refused to release his research for free he went ahead and released it anyway even though it was their proprietary yeah. information um so they they blackballed him for that 
But at the same time, you're right. It's like it's also saying that we as a society value profitability over every other concern and that anybody who doesn't follow that template, that authority, that ideal of capitalism is going to get pushed out to the margins. In this case, literally turned into an outlaw just because he wanted to do the right thing. Um, that character is very much like that. It's like Dr. Mayhem is in a weird situation. Dr. Mayhem has student loan debt far up the ass because he wanted to go to medical school and his family couldn't just buy it outright. <clears throat> they didn't have generational wealth to lean on. Um, and Dr. Mayhem doesn't really want to be a supervillain, but society has yeah. said, no, you are a supervillain because you're not falling in line and you're not following the template we want you to follow. And yeah. I won't spoil it, but that plays very much into the ending of Dr. Mayhem's story where you discover a few secrets about how he got where he got. I can't wait. Um, yeah, um, a lot of the, you know, like writing, like with examples like that is, you know, like very self-aware and sometimes you like, kind of make fun of certain tropes um oh yeah are there any like specific you know tropes in the superhero media landscape that you wanted to subvert um let's see how do, how do i do it um i just really liked the idea that superheroes and supervillains are kind of punch clock workplace people like you remember hmm. Did you ever see the old Looney Tunes cartoon where the sheepdog and the wolf are constantly like doing battle over this flock? The wolf is trying to take the sheep away, the sheepdog is trying to stop it. But at the start of the cartoon, both of them literally punch a clock, like they're checking into a factory, saying, morning, Ralph, morning, Sam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the relationship I wanted to have going here. It's kind of how they deal with superheroes on shows like The Venture Brothers, for instance, that this is a job. This is how you choose to get by in life. And it's not really anything personal when they come into conflict. Like I don't, I try not to represent the heroes as universally horrible people. There is always a little something going on there. Even like the least redeemable of the heroes is really just trying to get paid. Um, I wanted to use the superhero stuff as a lens more so than making fun of superheroes themselves. Like, if you want something that's literally just satirizing Marvel Comics and all of its narrative practices, go watch The Boys. Um, I wanted to use it for something a bit a bit more than that. It's a bit beyond just saying, hey, superheroes suck, haha. No, I wanted to use the superheroes as a tool to say, hey, these other things suck, haha. Yeah, that's a really fresh way, because, you know, you mentioned The Boys. Like, it seems like a lot of stories that, you know, want to, like, deconstruct, quote-unquote, that genre are just, yeah. like, either Watchmen or The Boy. You know, it's like, it always has to be that one thing. And I like that you've managed to do something yeah. different than that. We got to um, get beyond just, what if Superman was bad? Yeah, like, like, okay, that's that, never that, been that, done thousands of times. That's level one. <laughs> that's level one of making fun of comic books. That, exactly. That's the bare minimum you can do. You really got to go beyond that or else you're just not going to say anything new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, being meta, um, I didn't understand this part of the story at first until I did my first caper with uh, the... I'm still not remembering characters' names. Uh, the leader right. of the of the twelve cult or something like that. The overmistress, yes. Yeah, the overmistress. Um, no spoilers, but uh, she's awakened a side of me that I 
didn't know I had. It's a whole thing. <laughs> um, so I'm having fun with that. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, you know when uh one of her cronies or w- whatever you want to say uh was speaking to, I don't want to ruin it, but speaking to the character but not the character. Oh yeah, yeah. So that... I'm curious, like, what was the inspiration for that? Because that was really that's a a really brilliant thing, and I'm really curious to see where that oh, yeah. goes. Well, I always had in the back pocket, what if we had a unreliable narrator in a visual novel? What if we had a character that we couldn't exactly trust everything they say is literally what's happening? But when I really saw it come to fruition was when I played this weird little indie novel on Steam, and it was called Milk Outside of a Bag of Milk. I've in heard this of game, that. Yeah, in this game, you are <sighs> playing pretty much a voice in the head of the main character who will talk back and forth with you. Ooh, cool. And there is, like, influence in both directions. Like, you know, this character is trying to convince you of certain things, you're trying to convince the character of certain things, you're acting either as a guardian angel or encouraging them deeper. It's very much a story about mental illness. Um, And I loved the idea that the player... There is no protagonist. There is no player character. The player is the player character, and the player is you. You, sitting at the keys, you are you, and Penny is someone else. So your influence on this world is very indirect, and it's very very much a dialogue between you and Penny. Um, that idea was really interesting to me. And it was interesting because, like, otherwise, if you're literally just being Penny, it could get a little monotonous on capers where Penny's yeah. just by herself. And just thinking to herself. It's like, this character isn't interacting with anyone. How do we keep this scene interesting? There's only one person. There is no dialogue. There is no back and forth. Well, if the player character is a character, then there's always at least two people involved in every scene, isn't there? There's Penny and there's you. So it was an interesting idea to me. And as I started doing the tutorial caper, which is the first thing I took on, um, just as a proof of concept to make sure this whole idea could work, it allowed for a lot of these little good moments where, like, Penny might disagree with you. Or Penny might yeah, have I've a different that <laughs> Yeah. I found it interesting that it was not the power fantasy of you are this person in this world. No. You are advising this person in this world. That's your role. Yeah, that's gonna, you know, because I said that I get immersed in these kind of games. So with this element, I know that's just gonna be... um a lot more in depth. So um, I'm going to blame you for my next uh, existential crisis. Thanks a lot. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. No. <laughs> so, um, the, the role-playing elements in this game seem more expansive, you know, with like being able to choose what jobs you want to do and what order, who you want to hang out with. Uh, the rating system, which I've, I've only gotten one positive rating so far. You know, it's, adds like another layer of strategy so um yeah was uh the writing process for this game compared to arcade spirits um how much more challenging was it with you know these expanded uh elements and routes (laughs) very challenging because it's so non-linear you could do any caper in any order and if there was something you did in one caper which affects something that happens in another caper you got to take that into account even if it's just a quick little mention of Penny saying, hey, this is familiar. I remember when this happened before. There were so many little, like, timeline continuity things that we had to look out for in the testing. In fact, 
when it came down to it, like after most of the bugs were fixed, our testers primarily were focused on what happens if you do this caper before this caper? You know, does it make sense? Does everything flow? Does Penny seem to remember events correctly? There was a lot of little moments that had to be tweaked or altered or have some additional text added in order to reflect the fact that every playthrough of this game is wildly unique. Where you go, who you talk to, what you say, what you do, who do, who are you working for, what jobs are you doing? All these things are in your control, and the text has to respond accordingly. So yeah, it was staggeringly complicated. It is really only manageable because it's all compartmentalized because each caper is kind of its own story onto itself. Yeah. They can affect each other a little bit, but generally, like I, when I was <clears> doing <throat> releases to my testers, I would say, okay, for this release, we now have this caper and this caper added, and the others were blank. And I just went caper by caper, filling them in into the grand structure, in, into the overall framework of the story. So the framework came first, and then it was down to individual capers that could fill out that framework. One other way that makes Penny Larceny different uh, from the arcade spirits is uh, the maturity level of, you know, <laughs> certain things, you know, whether it's the romance or the language used. Uh, was there any uh, specific reason that you chose to make this more of an adult story than your past ones? Yeah, um, it felt appropriate for the, like, seedy criminal atmosphere that we go a little bit harder on the edgy content, as it were. But also because um, one thing I felt that we kind of dropped the ball on in the first two games was the uh, the asexual playthrough route, the friendship playthrough route. We have support in both games for it. I am ace Aero myself, so I wanted to make sure, okay, can we have a playthrough of this visual novel where you don't have to romance anyone? Like, I know almost every visual novel on the face of the earth, which has a romance element, you are kind of required to romance someone if you want to get story content. Yeah. Let's have that not be the case. And I think in the first game, we kind of gave lip service to it, but we were largely just taking the Juniper romance and changing the wording a little. Meh. Like, if you wanted to see Naomi's story through to the end, you had to romance her. There was no option to be friends with Naomi and see her story through. And that was the same way with New Challengers. Now, in New Challengers, we tried to expand it a little. If you go with the friendship path in New Challengers, you'll get some unique scenes. Not that they aren't just like a copy-paste of someone else's. But again, you can't say, like, I want to see Loxley's story through the end. Do I have to romance Loxley? Yes, you do. So for this game, I was like, we can do better. I designed this game from the ground up so that you could see every single story path through to the end with or without romance. You could end up romancing Dr. Mayhem. You could just be Mayhem's best friend. Either way, you don't lose any content. You don't miss any scenes. Nothing is taken away from you. It's equivalent. And I thought, well, let's keep something in mind here. Ace and Aero are two different concepts. Yeah. They're often intertwined. I actually didn't know different. about that until a while ago that it yeah. was more specific than, you know. I thought Honestly, I didn't either. Like, I only really understood myself as Ace Aero, like, I want to say five or six years ago, and I am freaking old. <laughs> this is something that was never taught to me when I was a teenager, or even when I was like a 20-something. I didn't even know this was a thing. I didn't know it existed. And then when I found out about it, I was like, wait a minute. Oh, okay, now this makes sense, why I am what I am. Um, and I went on a podcast about Ace representation in gaming 
And there was somebody there who was Aero, but not Ace. And this is somebody who enjoyed, you know, casual sex and just didn't feel the emotional connection that others did. And mm. I thought, can I support that in a game? Can I make Ace and Aero an independent thing where you can be one or the other or both or neither? And well, if you're going to do that, then you're going to need sexual content in the game in order to justify the existence of that toggle, aren't you? Yeah. So right. instead of a wink and a nod, since Arcade Spirits was trying to be T for teen, um, I thought, well, let's just put some in. It won't be graphic. It won't be, you know, repulsive. It'll just be like winky PG-13 jokes. It won't be anything particularly horrible. It'll just be fun. It'll add a little bit of spice, and that's it. And even then, it'll be optional. In the same way you can turn off swearing. Um, I wanted to make it so that everybody could approach this game and be comfortable, regardless of what they were comfortable with. So you can turn on or off romance, turn on or off sex, turn on or off swearing. You can even skip past some scenes that are just a little bit too uncomfortable for you. I wanted to make sure this was a game everybody could play and would not neuter the experience for everyone just to make sure that it covered all the bases. I wanted something that you could approach on whatever level you want. Yeah, I think that's really cool because, you know, a lot of stories, I mean, I think it works for some that are intended to come across a certain way, but it's very much like you have to, you know, take whatever they give you. But I, I, I've never seen, especially in visual novels, like such a deep level of like, you don't like this, you don't have to do it. You don't like this, yeah. you don't have to do it. I think that's really interesting. Um, consent is important, and that counts on many, many levels. It's like, absolutely. I want to make sure that the player is consenting to the experience they're going to get. I'm not going to throw something at them that they're not ready for. Um, I think we had a few wham moments in the Arcade Spirits games that could have been handled better, and I think the fact that we approached this game with that in mind, so that you could literally just skip over those moments if you wanted to, um, by either not doing that caper, or having Penny let you skip past them and summarize. Um, it was important to me that we let people approach on whatever level they want. It's, um, I was wondering, but I didn't you know, just want to be intrusive and bring it up, but then Go now ahead. that you did, I could ask about it. So, um, yeah, sure. um, I did know that you were asexual. That was one of the, and aromantic. That was one of the things that I found out, you know, when I tried to find a bit more about you and, you know, the ironic, the irony of, you know, uh, two of these v video games I love that have romantic elements being written by a guy who is both of those things was really yeah. interesting. Um, was that like weird for you to reconcile? Like why you wanted to make video games with romance when that's not something you care about? Or did you just approach no, it really. for like other it's, people that, you know, would you want write that? stories based on your own life experiences, but you also write stories based on other life experiences that interest you and that you feel you can write. Um, I can certainly write a romance. It's not that hard. It's not difficult to understand. Uh, it's not like my brain just doesn't comprehend romance. I yeah, just personally yeah. don't, I'm not particularly interested in it. But I can still enjoy a story which has romantic elements in it. Um, it's really not that difficult, honestly, to get yourself in that mindset. Now, I will say that like, when you're playing Arcade Spirits, the first one notably, um, if you play through like Teo, Ashley, or Queen Bee storylines, you'll probably notice they're a little hotter and heavier than like Naomi's. Yeah. And that's because those were written by Anna. 
She is a fiend for romance stories. Uh-huh. She loves them. Um, I am not, which means my romance stories tend to be a little more engaged on the emotional, psychological level rather than that deep, passionate level. And that's just a difference in writing style. Um, but that is like one way you can tell this is a romance written by an arrow person is that like yeah. it's not really staggeringly hot. It's just trying to go for this deep emotional bond. Um, but yeah, it, it's it wasn't really alien to me. Uh-huh. It, it's not something I had to struggle to do. I, I just you're a writer. You write things. You write, you make up stories. I'm not an elf, but I can write about elves. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, a lot of these things, admittedly, you know, they're like, I have certain blind spots when it comes to like, you know, like certain sexualities, you know, uh, races and stuff like that. So it's been really interesting to kind of learn the uh, how uh, extensive, expansive, I guess would be. As much as I want to write diverse stories about diverse people and tell stories about other walks of life, I do know that there are some things that are not my story to tell. Yeah. Like, I considered having an autistic character one of my stories, and I was like, I don't feel that's my story to tell. I don't think I could do it justice, and I don't want to speak on behalf of someone else. I don't want to take their voice. That's an example of, like, you gotta know your boundaries. You gotta know the things that you feel you can dip into through research and through consulting, and the things where it's just like, this isn't really your tale and it's presumptuous of you to think that it is. Um, but in terms of romance, I feel that's something that I can put in my wheelhouse and I can take on, even mm. if it's not my personal thing. Yeah, it's really important to know your limitations. Some people, you know, they're well-meaning, but it seems like they try and speak on certain things that maybe they shouldn't yeah. speak on. Yeah, Dude, you don't need to step in as the savior here. You don't need to say, well, I know this person's life experience because I've read Tumblr. Um, you gotta know where you can do things like that and where you really should not. Yeah. And I think this is an example where I think I could step in. So I went ahead. But there are things where I certainly did back away. Okay, Um, we've been recording for a bit, so I just have uh, three you know, kind of miscellaneous questions that I want to end the episode with. Um, (laughs) You're currently working on your next uh, project. Um, Right. I saw you were saying because, you know, your games, except the first Arcade Spirits, haven't been that profitable that it might be your last. I hope not, but I mean... I mean, I hope not, too. Um, Yeah. If it comes down to it, I can just dip into my life savings and do this. I do have a day job. It's just like, I don't know how like where the line is drawn between personal responsibility and like just going for it. I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. Um, and I'm hopeful that Penny will find a wider audience. Like it certainly landed with the folks that it's landed with, like the folks who played arcade spirits and played Penny Larson, they love it. And I'm very, very happy with the response. I do not blame my fans for its poor sales. They have done yeah. all that and more to support me. It's really a matter of marketing. And I do have professional markers working on this to try to get the word out to a wider range. Um, but yeah, for I, I'm certainly doing a fourth game, or at least I'm going to try. I'm not going to promise. You never know. Things happen. But I am aiming to do a fourth. I don't know about a fifth. It's way too far in the future. We'll wait and see. Do you uh want to share any d- details about uh 
what you're working on now or would you yeah. prefer to keep it close it's to not the chest? Something, well, it's not something oh. that I'm like trumpeting on social media or trying to do hype and promotion and reaching out to press for because it's so early in the process. But like I mentioned, I am openly talking about it and collaborating on it. It's just not something that I'm really pushing. It's like I'm trying to find the, 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 the ground where it's like a low murmur in the background as I do my work. And once it comes closer to release, that's when I'm going to start busting out the trumpets. Um, currently, and this name has changed several times, the project is called The Shadow Over Cyberspace. And mm. it's a mashup of Y2K internet uh, culture and Cthulhu. Oh, wow. That it's like Lovecraftian <laughs> entities are on the internet, and they are going to bring the end of days on January 1st, 2000. That and sounds you are insane. trying to navigate those waters. That sounds awesome, man. I can't wait to uh, check yeah, that out. It, it's evolved a few times. It started out as a story about ghosts, and then it started. Then it became a story about it being in a nuclear bunker with a bunch of uh, malfunctioning AI, and now it's about Lovecraftian entities. So who even knows what's going to be next week? But this one has been pretty solid for like a month or so. So I think this is probably the one that's going to stick. We are really, really, really early into development on this, so everything <laughs> I say should be taken with an entire shaker of salt. <laughs> is it going to be... Um, I noticed uh, Penny Larceny right now is only on uh, Steam yeah. and uh, Mac, and I think Linux? Am yeah, I wrong? Steam, Mac, and Linux. Yeah. Um, so um, are there... Did you eventually want all of your projects to also be on consoles or is that just yeah, a matter of like finding the the money and stuff like that? That's it. it. It's really down to money. It's that there's really only like one or two companies on the planet that can port games using my engine and we would need to get the money together to justify it. And right now we are not there for Penny Larceny. Um, maybe in the future, like it is capable. It is capable of being ported. I did not do anything with the interface that is strictly PC only, but we would need to have the funds to do it and to justify it. And right now it's not there, but you never know. Speaking of funds, this is like a fun uh, brainstorm that I thought of. Mm -hmm. If you had, you know, like a, you know, like a unlimited budget, unlimited resources oh, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, do you know what kind of game you would want to make? Telltale. I wouldn't want to make, I would want to make something like the Telltale Walking Dead games. Like they're, like they're like the wolf among us, like Sam and Max saved the world. Mm. I like that format. I feel that it's a good mix of visual novel presentation style with really strong visuals. I think that's a really good format, and it's not one which has been explored enough because it's really only been one company that's worked on it. Um, yeah. And recently released Stray Gods is another good example of it using a different aesthetic. Um, I still would certainly do a narrative game. I wouldn't suddenly launch into doing like Halo. Um, but yeah, if budgets were unlimited, we would be talking like full voice acting. We would be talking full animation. It would be a, very, a much more cinematic presentation, but it would still be the same concept of getting through a story, making decisions, playing a role, and seeing the consequences. Yeah, that would be awesome to see you... Uh work in that field yeah the telltale walking dead games absolutely crushed me man i yeah you know and i they they got <laughs> good as they got along like you can see their evolution as game designers from the first one straight through the last one you can see where they started like honing their craft 
and expanding their capabilities. I didn't always agree with every decision they made in terms of the narrative, because honestly, I don't like The Walking Dead, but the presentation of it and the interface and the way the narrative plays out and the complexity of that narrative got better and better and better until they got to what I feel is their zenith, but was criminally underplayed, which was uh, the second season of their Batman Telltale series. The Batman? I love that. I love both yeah, of those the games. the first one was good. The second one was Chef's Kiss Excellent. Yeah, I prefer the second one, like the relationship with, you know, Catwoman and stuff. Um, yeah, I got like, the wow. ending where, I didn't know this until I looked it up, that, like, she got... Up arrested and there's a way to like get amanda waller to release her and i didn't know that so you got her arrested i didn't know that was possible or i think she got captured by so amanda many, waller or something. so many variations within that story it's just amazing but yeah if i had unlimited budget i would be using something along those lines absolutely man i'm still hoping that would eventually be possible because that would and i you never know I kind of want to be an actor, so maybe I could even be in one. Who knows? <laughs> if we do an open casting call, man, throw your name in the ring. Oh, yeah. But, like, as you see a Penny Larson and I having acting, it's, like, it's st- very, very expensive to get voice acting into a game, even partial voice acting. So you have to, like, weigh the benefits versus the costs. But, yeah, in a world where I had, you know, infinite budget, I would be doing something along those lines. And then uh, my final question is, uh, what advice... What do you give to anybody, you know, who's like trying to break into, you know, maybe the film industry, the novel industry, the video games industry? What's like the most important piece of advice that you uh, feel they should know? Well, I can't speak to films or even novels because honestly, I have not broken into the novel industry despite writing a ton of novels. Um, They were all self-published. But for games, um, find people to collaborate with. Know what you're good at, do the things you're good at, find people to work with who can do the other things. Combine all your, combine everything you've got together into one project and know your limits and work within them. Um, But, and just like, try not to overpay for things. Like, Mm. know not just your own personal limits in terms of skill, but no limits in terms of your finances. Don't crack into your life savings in order to make this happen. Don't think, you know, as long as this is an overnight success, I'll be fine. It will not be an overnight success. Don't expect yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Don't plan for that. Oh, God, no. Um, have a day job. Don't make this the only thing that's going to make you live or die. Just try to work within your limits creatively. If there's a thing you can't do, think, well, what can I write? What kind of story can I write? What kind of game can I make that works within the limits of what I can do? That's what I'm doing right now with my current project. I'm thinking, like, if I want to work within a smaller budget than Arcade Spirits and Penny Larceny, how can I do that and still have it be interesting and find creative, interesting workarounds rather than say, well, I just, I guess, can't do this. I don't have the money. You can always find a way, even if it's not going to be exactly what you had originally envisioned. And if you play your cards right, you can come up with something that's cool, and the players who play it are not going to care that it costs less. Well, I think uh, your games are a great testament to how you can do a lot with a little. And um, mm-hmm. speaking of films, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the filmmaker uh, Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. He's very much a, a proponent of that school. Oh, just, yeah. His, just uh, freaking do it. <laughs> his first movie, uh, 
and mariachi was made for like seven thousand five hundred dollars he yeah. did you know like the editing cinematography stuff himself and like dude it like straight up looks better than a lot of big budget movies and it's like i've seen know. all of mariachi it's, it's a great movie and he he worked creatively within the limits he had he used tools like editing in order to cover the gaps and created something great out of it yeah, yeah that's always a uh, inspiring for sure um so mm-hmm. that's the end of my outline is there anything i didn't bring up that you wanted to talk about at all uh not really i'm just i'm really really thankful for all the support that i've had over the years for these games um i'm thankful for every new player who walks in curious about what we're doing um these are games for everyone they're very lgbt friendly but the straights are welcome too um (laughs) we're trying to make an experience that anybody can approach and enjoy and i think if you play the demos like if you're on the fence you're like i don't I don't play visual novels. That's not my genre. I don't like visual novels. Grab the free demos for Arcade Spirits, Penny Larceny, things like that. Give them a spin. We find a lot of people will go, oh, okay, yeah, I can get into this. It's like there is a preconception of what a visual novel is. We try to break that. It's not that we're saying we're better than all the visual novels. No, we're just saying we're trying to build something everyone can approach regardless of whether or not they're familiar with the genre. And we think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And if you don't like it, that's fine. Different strokes for different folks. I can attest to that. I played Arcade Spirits on a whim, you know. I I had just gotten my Switch not that long ago. I was just looking for visual novels because I think that's, like, the best way to play them is on a handheld console. And, like, I just saw this, like, oh, these people working in arcade and there's romance. Well, I love arcades. Okay, whatever. I'll wait for a sale. I'll check it out. And then... I like I like started it one night when I got home from work and I was like, okay, whatever, let's like my expectations were non-existent, and then I like played a little bit of it and I was like, I looked at the clock and I had to go to bed. I was like, damn it, I want to keep playing. Like it just, I didn't think it would grab me that much. You never know. So yeah, if if you're listening to this right now and you have no idea what the hell we're talking about, go grab a free demo on Steam or Itch and just give it a spin. You might like it. Stefan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for gracing me with your presence and your time. Um, I don't know how much of a grace it is, but you're welcome. <laughs> I will uh, link all of your social medias in the d- descriptions on every platform. So we are on YouTube, Spotify, audible apple podcasts if there's anything i'm missing uh caleb will (laughs) write it in the description because he's the one who does all that stuff um all right so thank you for listening to this episode um go check out these games please if you don't uh you have no class i'm just kidding i still love you um thanks for listening i will see you in the next one peace be gay do crime